Hello, and welcome to Mong... Oh, Jesus Christ, Chris. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> keep this in, David. Keep this in. <laughs> no, please don't keep it in. Keep it in. I feel so Hello, bad. and welcome to Manga Explaining, the show where we recommend great manga to folks who haven't read much manga before. Hosted by Debbie Oke, David Brothers, some guy named Chris, and myself, Chip Sadarsky. Follow along with our show notes and reading list at mangasplaining.com. So obviously I'm hosting, which is rare. I think I've only hosted it three times before this, maybe four. Mm. We're revisiting a book I quite enjoyed in the previous season. So this one is going to be Even Though We're Adults, Volume 2 by Takako Shimura. And it continues the story of Ayano and Shuri, two women who are falling for each other. Despite one being married to a man? Dun, dun, dun. This volume goes into the aftermath of Ayano telling her husband about the forbidden kiss and the complications that arise with his family, of all things. So yeah, I love volume one. And it's so rare we kind of go on to other volumes. And I was really looking forward to this. And I read it. And I enjoyed it. All right, so that's been manga explaining. <laughs> <laughs> really, what more needs to be said? Yeah, what mm. more needs to be said? So I'll, I'm going to put it out to you. How does volume two stack up to volume one? And I'm going to pick Chris first, because he so rudely interrupted my opening. I'm so glad you picked me first, actually, because oh, I don't know if you remember back to the episode, but I was like, I actually just want to read. I don't think, oh, I think this was behind the scenes. I actually really wanted to read, even though we're adults volume two, but I don't make time to read anything unless we're putting it on the podcast lately. Yeah, fair. So we're going to have to cover some American comics at some point so I can catch up. But yeah, so I'm I'm glad. I have some real mixed thoughts about this volume, actually. And it wasn't, it's not that it's not good. It's still like a really good book, I think. But I actually, I don't want to, I don't want to take up all the air here, but I will say that a thing that I liked that I keep going back to when I think about this property is something that David said on the first episode. And it was that there's a poetry to how their relationship sort of came together, scenes sort of cut together, some like real art to like, the two of them sort of falling for each other. That was, I thought, really amazing. And that was actually something that really resonated with me for the first volume. And this volume is a lot more grounded in the everyday, in like, I think more than doubles the cast of speaking yeah. characters. It yeah. introduces a bunch of sort of mundane situations and circumstances to let this forbidden love affair bounce off of. And at its core, this story, I was really interested in the relationship of the two women and how it sort of played out, like how it played off with her husband, who was a really interesting character. And I was less interested in sort of like the teacher stuff or, you know, whatever. And then we just get more of everything. We get more of everything in this volume, but it was really weighted towards the sort of larger world that these characters inhabit. And it's probably really good narrative building and story building mm -hmm. but it was the poetry which is not necessarily narrative it's you know it's poetry that i was most in love with in the first volume and so i had yeah. a kind of a mixed re mixed reaction it's interesting yeah i get there is an elegance to the first volume because of the focus on the two characters mm. and here you kind of it's hard to make uh, to, to make this uh, american comic example it's hard to make a team book elegant Mm. An X-Men page doesn't look as elegant as a Batman page. You're absolutely right. 
there's too much going on. There are a few instances in here that are still quite lovely in terms of the art, but I think the first one was more artful. Mm-hmm. And I get what you're saying about all the characters kind of derail that kind of that love story. And my first read through, I think I agreed with you, but I actually I felt like I missed a lot reading it in one go that I actually had mm-hmm. to go back and reread it. And then I enjoyed mm-hmm. it a lot more the second time because once oh. I kind of knew the characters, it just kind of it added to the narrative for me. So interesting to hear. So interesting yeah. to hear. Yeah, I'm super smart. It's true. <laughs> Deb, Deb, what did you think of volume two? It had been a while since I read volume one and even volume two. Like I'm a binge reader. So after we read volume, I just read whatever was available. Mm. But it's this is the first time I've revisited this volume in a couple months. It's really interesting how understated it is. You know, there's a lot of drama going on, but the drama, but the, you know, like the, the husband is not necessarily a cut and dried bad person who's yeah. getting in the way of their love. The mother-in-law is not a cut and dried, why don't you guys have children and, you know, do this kind of thing. And how she takes the news of, oh, you had an affair and it was just a kiss and, you know, all that kind of thing. And then like later on, it's like finding out that this wasn't her only crush or female mm. friendship more than friends relationship. So there's all kinds of little nuances that got it introduced into this story that, you know, you could say it clutters it up. I mean, sometimes some of the, some of the characters that I introduced, like the shut in sister, I was like, wait, where's this going with this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, But, you know, at the same time I've been watching maybe too much Korean dramas. <laughs> <laughs> no such thing. And, and it's like reading through this is like, oh, this is really dialed back. Because, mm. you know, it's so, there's not, there's not a lot of yelling. There's a lot of maybe passive aggressiveness. Oh, yeah, a lot. But not a lot of yelling and not a lot of crying. Yeah. It's kind of like there's a, there's a battle going on, but it's on a different level. Mm-hmm. It's a battle of wills going on on a completely different level. Like, like the husband, like, like he says, I won't give you a divorce. And it's like, but why? Yeah. Oh, because divorce and, well, that's, oh, I want to talk about that. Oh, yeah. No, that's yeah, a whole yeah. other thing, yeah. right? So, and then it's like, and she's not sure what to do with it. So I guess when I read first read volume one, I thought, oh, this is going to be over three volumes, you know? And when I mean, you get a taste of volume two, you realize, oh, it's actually not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. David, what did you think? I have two takes. Do you want the emotional one or the slightly ridiculous comparison that's actually going to be very apt? Oh, oh why, very why, apt. Well, why why do we I got to, my vote. Why do we have to choose? Yeah, why I do we want have to peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with the craft and work our way into oversharing on the internet. Like, All right, more. I love it. So I love, like, violence comics are my favorite genre. And this is very much not that. But there's like a melodrama to violence comics that I like a lot that I don't like in my like drama drama comics, if that makes sense. Okay. Like I'm not really into soap opera, but I'll watch a movie about like a messed up family or dysfunctional family just to see how it plays out. And this is like a Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon romance comic almost with the density, <laughs> right? <laughs> with the density yeah. of the talking heads, like all yeah. the different angles each character approaches from and also like how smoothly it reads. Jocelyn Allen, friend of the podcast, and Casey Lucas are credited with translation and adaptation. And there are a lot of points where I was like, oh, this is good localization. 
maybe like slightly Canadian, but like very smooth. <laughs> <laughs> wait, you, wait, you have to stop there. Yeah. How is it slightly Canadian? There were, yeah. It may just be me like being from the <laughs> South, but like we don't, or maybe just from my family or whatever, but like I feel like supper is like a oh. sli- slightly Canadian thing. Okay. Supper is a yeah. Canadian thing. Versus dinner. Yeah. Not that people in America don't say supper, but it does feel like a very regional thing to me. Mm-hmm. And because I know Jocelyn's from Canada, I'm like, oh, it's probably that versus, you know, mm. just her being good at writing. Supper, I mean, yeah, we, we use it a lot in Canada. Supper, to me, always felt like a, like a southern U.S. thing. Like, we're going for supper. I think there's well, that, sorry. but that's like a fancy dinner. That's oh, because supper is fancy yeah. East Coast? Even that voice yeah, you did is Coast, like a fancy uh, southerner. Yeah, wait, well, wait. no, obviously, any voice I do is immediately <laughs> fancy. You know that. Wait, the Hawaii girl needs to know, what's the difference between supper and dinner? I would say supper feels like slightly more upper mm. class, but in reality, probably nothing. Uh, well, if I may, it's actually, yeah. it comes, it's Acadian, it's from the East Coast, and so obviously it goes into the East Coast of Canada, but also down into like Louisiana, like the mm-hmm. Acadians of, of Louisiana, and supper's an extra meal. Supper's like the second nighttime meal. It's like 11Zs, like with the hobbits and shit. It's like, <laughs> basically, if you're going to get up first thing in the morning to go fish, like, cause that's what you do on the East Coast, you yeah. actually have dinner before you, right before, you have supper. Sorry, you have supper right before, or supper is the early one and dinner is the late one. It's one of the two. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, you have a second meal right before you go to bed, and then you get up in the morning and immediately go out fishing, and you have breakfast when you get back from fishing. It's like a what? Like agricultural world. So it's like a second dinner. Amazing. But because people obviously travel and you know immigrate all over the all over the country, the words have kind of become interchangeable as just evening meal. Yeah, that's huh. pretty cool. Well, yeah. uh, that's just your bag of potato chips for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's breakfast for me. So yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for joining us for meal explaining. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. With my David, you had a, David, you had a second into this. Yeah. The oh well, the Innis Dylan thing is it's people oh, yeah. like having great conversations in various settings, a lot of which are mm-hmm. bars actually, which is like an Innis Dylan staple, <laughs> and mm. they're all kind of being very honest but not very open in a lot of ways. So there's some yeah. jousting in here that I liked a lot. If I may, for those yeah. who don't know, Ennis Dillon is Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon, a comics pair best known for their work on Hellblazer and Preacher in the comics industry. So the late Steve Dillon, who was great. Garth Ennis works with a lot of wonderful artists uh, doing stuff. Yeah, check out their work. I think we all yeah. rate it pretty highly, except for maybe Deb, who maybe hasn't read any of it. <laughs> Ennis is kind of like my like top tier comics dialogue guy. You know, I feel like yeah. he has an amazing ear for dialogue. But the other angle is emotional. Like, you know, we talked a lot on the previous episode about our various dating histories and proclivities. Proclivities has got to be the wrong word. It sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it probably sounds classier than it needs to be what, right? based on what you're describing. Or worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so a lot of this book is how do you respond to the dilemmas the characters are going through, like based on our own you know, history and like what we want out of relationships. I think I said that I, I hope somehow they end up in some kind of like polyamorous triad. And that's still true, but I loved getting to see all of their family involved and how difficult that can make a relationship. Mm-hmm. Because something I mentioned before the podcast was I watched Neil Brennan's latest Netflix special, Blocks. Oh, and he yeah. is a bit 30 or 40 minutes into it, one of several that ruined me, where he talks about how much of relationships are luck. You know, he says, mm. like, you've got like a one in eight chance of marrying someone you're dating. The marriage has a 50 50 percent chance of working out. 50 50 chance of working out. You can't do it. 
And that means it's functionally like if you're great and your partner's great, that's like a 6% chance of having a loving, lasting relationship. So it's luck. Like dating is really hard and really difficult. And this does a good job of showing like not just the luck, but also the difficulty that comes from that. Mm. Like when the younger girl, when the flashback scene, there's a bit where we see the main character in high school and she's like, you know, like, I wish you'd been born or wish you were a boy. Or, you know, it's kind of unlucky that she's a girl instead of a boy. There's all these little moments where it could have gone another way. And mm. it keeps making it even more, not compelling. I mean, yes, compelling, but like, I feel bad for everybody involved in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I was glad that the one lady got to say, like, I'm the victim here, but everyone keeps coming to my job and making things <laughs> weird. Oh, uh, that was such a good moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was good. That was yeah. So I think having like a year's worth of thinking about relationships since we last read this, and then also like very recently seeing that Neil Brennan thing, like I'm still rooting for everybody. And I can see why someone would feel that this kind of derails it by introducing all these other people. But like no relationship is an island, at least hopefully not. You know, like you have Mm -hmm. friends, you have relations and coworkers, acquaintances that have to kind of factor into all this. So I think that Shimura is doing an amazing job of kind of painting a picture of this really complicated situation without making anyone come across a good villain. I agree with that. I don't think anyone, uh, the mom actually does not. Does she come across as a mom or a villain? Yeah. It's pretty borderline actually at points because Mm -hmm. it's not even like, like she's, she's putting her own needs. She's forefronting her own needs and desires at the expense of not only her children, one of whom became a shut in because of something that we haven't discovered yet, but Mm -hmm. like, it's not villainous necessarily, but it's kind of shitty behavior. Like it's not just mom behavior. Like it's like, well, you should move in with us and you're because your father's going to be sick. And so someone's it's like, you've already got two kids living with you. Why do you need your son to come home and take care of your dad as well? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, and who cares mm-hmm. if you kissed a girl? It's not a big deal. You're still gonna stay married and you're still gonna do this. And it's like, maybe they need to figure some stuff out. Like she's not played as like, sorry, there's obviously mom stuff there too, but there's also like she is not. I don't think Shimura is being kind to her as a character, let's say. And I think that that's really interesting. But doesn't that give you insight to the husband and his actions? You mean, oh, sorry. Her husband? Why he's in the hospital? Because it's her? Yeah. No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. The, yeah. the way that, the way that yeah. the mother is acting and her attitude is, is mm. echoed and must trickle down into Wataru somehow. Yeah, right. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hmm, it's so such a weird. Which helps gives us give thing, some yeah. background or some like, even if it's subtle, some kind of aha moment. Like, oh, that's why he's like that. <laughs> that's yeah. why he's reacting like that, right? And not in a super obvious way, but kind of like, oh, okay, this doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, I feel mm. like. I mean, it felt very contrived to kind of put Ayano into this situation <laughs> with all the family. <laughs> yeah, on on the eve of her wanting a divorce. But it also it highlighted how different her character is from the family, because the family is all passive aggressive, and Ayano is just passive. Mm. Ayano is just kind of floating through all these situations, not making too many decisions. Even in the flashback with her friend, you know, wanting her special hugs or whatever, it's like Ayano's just like, "Oh, this is happening." Like it's That's it's true, always yeah. just kind of like that as she's trying to figure out internally what's going on, but rarely is it external. And so her being thrown into this situation where there's all this weird kind of sniping happening underneath, I thought was a really interesting way to kind of highlight her character and how she's just kind of like, she's 
she's in the middle of everything and she's a catalyst, but she's not doing a lot. Like she, she said that they should get divorced and he said no. And she just kind of kept going on. Like she wasn't even like really broken up about that. It's just like, okay, I'm moving uh, in with uh, the family. Counterpoint. We are introduced to Ayano's family as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not like, Oh, all families are weird and awful. Uh, like no. it's not like Wataru's family and Wataru's mom is like terrible. We're actually introduced to Ayano's family as a counterpoint to mm-hmm. show that like, Oh, that's really weird. And it's like, and then the Ayano's sister finds out that she like cheated. And that is, I got a whole thing about that, but like, and it's like, Oh, but like, they're still forcing you to move in. That's weird, actually. Like, that's super weird. Mm-hmm. And we all get to feel that that is super weird as well. But it's, I don't know, something that's maybe more common. Is it forcing? Do you feel like she had an option? I don't think I don't we think have it's a choice. Info. Yeah. Do you feel like her and Wataru could have said no? I think moving after requesting a divorce is like the wildest possible decision you could make. It's like, let's do a really annoying thing together. But I think that it reflects <laughs> how complicated the relationship is getting. Because yeah. she doesn't have to. I'm trying to think of a way to say this. It's not like she doesn't have to stay there, but she's choosing she to stay there. Yeah, yeah, and th- and, and that's, I think some of that's the mm-hmm. wishy washiness that you were mentioning. But I think also she she's comfortable there. Like there's something to this situation that she's she benefits from or she gets something out of. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting the way that she cut through a lot of the drama of Wataru's family when she's like, oh. I'll ask the shut-in to go visit their sick dad with me, who I haven't seen in like five years. And that's the best possible decision for me to make right now. And it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like her husband is like, oh, well, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I want to hang out with my actual sister. But <laughs> she kind of goes for it. I think because of her experience with her own sister. Mm. So I agree she's very passive. But I think that there are certain ways in that she's not. And other ways that she's kind of hemmed in by her relationship by her situation, I would say, more so than their relationship. Mm-hmm. Like when she goes and visits the, the lady on the break when her husband's in the restaurant, like she gets in a taxi. Yeah. And it's some, clearly something they discuss and they're like, okay, you have to do this. You should go and do it. And then we can talk about it after. Like that's like a hella mature emotional relationship move. Very difficult. I don't know. This look, I'm flipping through this and I'm noticing that Wataru just doesn't make any advances on his wife like doesn't treat her with any affection i mean or jokes with her or whatever it just seems like he's of course he's angry right and of course he's being standoffish but it's like i'm not exactly sure why i don't know it's just a really weird dynamic isn't it because yeah. she's kinda, she just kind of goes through her life you know this like whatever comes comes but in not as she has this relationship and this all of a sudden, this excitement, she's forced to ask herself, is this something I want to fight for? Mm-hmm. And she doesn't. And she doesn't. <laughs> but then she regrets it. And then, of course, Shimura, like, if you read to the end of volume two, there's like, oh, and guess what? She's going to move in next door. Yeah. It's one like, of the funniest yeah. to be continued yeah. I've ever seen in my life. I saw that yeah. to be continued, and it actually soured that part of the book even more for me. Because it was like, <laughs> oh, it's going to be like a it's going to be a little wacky and I don't want it to be wacky. I want it to be like two beautiful ladies in like, you know, hiding in an alley, you know, kissing and discovering each other. I don't want it to be like, and now she like the lesbian moved in next door and we're all going to live together. Like I would love to have them have like a polyamorous relationship, 
like you were saying, like that would be the best possible outcome. But I don't think moving next to Wataru's mom is going to be how that works. I don't yeah. see her coming on board with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of it kind of goes with what's happened in in the volume because like moving in with the the husband's family is also kind of the wacky scenario where yeah. like <laughs> things are going to stem from. I was going to say for Wataru, the husband, I was fascinated by the fact that like through this whole volume, he has drawn almost always with a dead stare. Yeah, like he is yeah. just he is just dead throughout this, and the scene after Ayano talks to Shuri, and they're in the restaurant, and he's just looking at his phone. Mm. She goes like, "Thanks for letting me go talk to her." And he he's not even looking at it. He goes, "It's fine." If she tried to kill herself or something, I'd have trouble sleeping at night. Ooh. But he's not even like he's not engaging with her at all. Like this is just like, mm. yeah, like I had sympathy for him in volume one, and that sympathy kind of drained. In volume two, I mean, uh, not fully though, because once you see his family and especially his mother, you're just like, oh, okay, I I get it. But the way he treats his his shut in sister, who he apparently has not made efforts or like, or we haven't seen efforts like for them to reconcile, where he's like, yeah, I wouldn't know what to say to her. It's been a couple of years. It's like it's your sister, dude. Yeah, yeah. Like I lost a lot of sympathy for him as a character in that scene in that moment, and it's whatever. People have complicated family stuff, and I don't want to get away but this is fiction uh, also and yeah. like we are meant to take something from that like for whatever reason aries got a lot of stuff going or the the, the shut-in sister has like a lot of stuff going on and like he's like yeah i wouldn't know how to talk to her about that so like yeah i just kind of saw that as being like oh something is going to be explained at some point as to why i hope he said so that. yeah i read that as distress more so than disinterest i'm trying to flip back to the page now it's uh like shock comics. or almost like he had the the impending divorce yes or no on his mind mm-hmm. and not reconciling or like living with his sister necessarily mm-hmm. like he was caught by surprise and maybe overwhelmed a little bit mm. i mean that's the worst thing you could do right i mean they if they're having problems they should have the privacy to work it out yeah the moving in such a bad decision such a bad decision, <laughs> a bad decision. yeah okay page 112 is when he says, you know, I'm good. I'll visit our father on my own. I wouldn't know what to say to Ari after all this time. And he's kind of blushing and sweating a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it feels like really guilty to me. Like there's definitely something that has to be explained there. Well, yeah. Cause in the next page he's thinking, shoot, did she hear me talking about her? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's like he, there's kind of more concern there than he has for the situation he's in with his wife. Mm-hmm. There is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a fascinating volume. Like I said, like I, I needed to do the second read through because the first one yeah. I kind of bounced off it a little bit. But like going through it again, there's there's a lot of layers to the relationships and the characters, and so I'm I'm kind of glad in hindsight that the actual kind of the love story aspect mm. slowed down to a crawl to kind of allow for all this to come in. Yeah, I haven't read volume three. I know Deb has. David owns it. Working on it. I might Working save it for the it. next episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I feel like it's got to kind of ramp up a lot in volume three, but yeah, I guess we'll see when I recommend we read more next season. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this will be our new Akira. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is our new Metamorphosis. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Metamorphosis, yeah. yeah. I, I love this as like counter to Akira. <laughs> <laughs> it really is in a lot of ways. I was thinking while I was reading this, I was like, this is kind of for grownups in a way that Akira isn't, you know? Mm, yeah. In terms of mm. the subject matter, what it's going for, 
The yeah, in-laws absolutely. household is about to explode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't imagine picking this up without having, like, adult experience and getting much out of it. Like, it's cute. It's funny. It's well-drawn. But there's so much of this where I'm like, oh, this is like real life in ways that I'm not entirely happy with, but I'm glad to see on the page, you know? Yeah. 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 Also, it's really funny. There are so many bits where I like laughed out loud. Really? Like which one? When she falls asleep on her bed and Mm -hmm. right before dinner, when Ayano does, and then Eri goes to wake her up and there's a drawing of her face and she has like the dumbest face on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She's sleeping with her eyes open. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I screen grab that one immediately. (laughs) Yeah, when the sister goes to the restaurant and it says, hey, do you know Ayano Okubo? And there's the pause and then there's the full face blush and like her eyes go white. Yeah, Mm -hmm. love that effect too. There's also a bit of internal dialogue for Shuri that both loved and was funny and also very insightful Mm. into my life, which was I've mistaken regular ass horniness for the cosmic pull of destiny before. (laughs) I love, yeah. And I I always ended up worse off for it. (laughs) like oh yeah no i get that i get that (laughs) and that led to another thing i thought was really funny or maybe it was just before when she accidentally calls her like she's like should Mm. i block this number or delete her oh yeah yeah and then she's like hello (laughs) like love it speaking as a guy who's sent an email to the wrong person talking about a second person (laughs) yeah i've been there (laughs) oh wow (laughs) way funnier when it happens to other people Mm. yeah yeah i uh i actually I want to go back to something you said that this is for grownups. And I think this is maybe, I don't remember because it's been 40 episodes or something, but I think that's maybe why I recommended this to Chip originally. So I wanted to read it, but he was talking about how we had been, we'd been reading a lot of books that were like kind of shown in and, and shoujo and stuff. And it was like, here's a book that's like legit for grownups about grownup things and grownup problems. And I think maybe one of the, why I didn't put this together until just now, and this is the joy of doing the podcast with you guys, is that the art that I felt was missing from this volume was actually there, but it was in the flashback sequence where she's a teenager and she's finding like mm. the first girl that ever confessed sort of her feelings to her. And it is really well done and artsy and poetic in the ways that I wanted and it has that same kind of vibe as the first volume. But I'm just so much more used to that kind of thing happening in like Yuri manga or even Yaoi manga, like when it's about teenagers, because it's always about like, those first romantic feelings, those first crushes, those first experiences, which is like, fine, those books got to exist. Every kid needs to see themselves reflected in a book, especially gay kids. And it's just, I'm 45 and I've read it all before so many times (laughs) that it didn't, it didn't resonate the way that the two adult ladies getting into an adult relationship for the first time did in the first volume. And Mm. looking back at it, just scanning while we've been talking here, it's like, yeah, it's exactly the same kind of storytelling that we found in the first volume, except it's about these two characters. And it is, you know, I will say it's less immediate because it's in flashback. And I, I liked mm-hmm. the immediacy of their relationship, even when we were learning things like they cut out in the middle of like their first meeting and then we go back to it a little bit later. And, you know, that's a cool narrative technique. And it's, it is less immediate because it's like remembering something that happened a long time ago. But there is art to this. And yeah, I think... I think maybe Chip's right. I think maybe a second read through it would maybe improve that and it would feel more like for grownups. But I, I want the grown up stuff. And mm-hmm. even if it comes with like messy family shit, but I want the fun grown up stuff. I want the like going to bars and meeting people grown up stuff, not the having to deal with your mother in law trying to prevent you from getting a divorce grown up stuff. <laughs> maybe that's just what I want in my manga. 
So hmm. on page 152 in that flashback, there's the, I guess their second or third embrace in like the trench coat with the turtleneck sweater. And that feels like such a mature angle on like a younger fantasy. Yeah. Because like, she's clearly not into it, but like she's sort of relenting in a way that you can tell she cares, but she doesn't care the same way as the other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a horrible place to be in, in a relationship. Like yeah. on either side, I would say. It really is. I'm just flipping through the pages. And what I'm admiring is the very clear through line she makes for each panel. Mm. Like going from the panel to panel to panel, the way the characters are positioned, the way the word balloons are positioned. It reads very smoothly. And seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought of Cross Game while we were reading while I was reading this mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah, I read Cross yeah, Game yeah. after the first volume of this, but I think they mm-hmm. did very similar storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. One of my favorite pages from this is the husband's little sister, Ari. Mm-hmm. Page thirty-six when she's waking up, and so mm-hmm. it's a, it's just a really nice scene setting shot, and then just like the slowly kind of starting the day on your own. But the fact that the final panel is just that little foot just poking out of the frame to go into whatever kind of mess the house is going to be in is a really beautiful little touch. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I love the facing page with the like the cursing in the word building. <laughs> yeah. yeah, where it's just like a scrawl of something and a exclamation point and what is it? Interrobang is a question mark exclamation. Yeah, point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like on 42 where there's that weird angle where the mother is in the doorway like that's not an that's not an obvious choice for how to frame that panel. oh like a worm's eye view there yeah 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 mm-hmm. very clever yeah yeah there's some smart stuff there's a lot of really subtle craftsmanship going on here that you don't appreciate on first read mm-hmm. yeah it's good it's good i think it's as good as volume one the more i look at it the more i think about it the more i'm just like oh look, it's actually equal to that opening volume yeah I like the sister, Kaede, the um, the Kaede. younger sister who'd been through some stuff. Mm. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, I think maybe the most dickish thing Wataru has done is send her to the bar as kind of yes. a lark. Mm. Yeah, I, man, that was not a good move. But she's but that, so that weird cool. dead face he makes when he says "go get revenge." It's like what? Yeah, I think that was a joke, but I think you can't tell that kind of joke with a dead face. Mm. Like there's there's something going on there because like he does appreciate her he's disassociating that's actually what i'm getting from the dead face stuff and that you guys are talking about it's just Mm -hmm. like he is just like things that have happened out of my control so i give up like i'm just gonna like like he's like a little bit like a zombie but also just like oh if you want to meet her she works at this bar like like and it's played a little bit like subtle and like kind of dickish but it's like if you just read it it's like well if you want to know who that person is they're here their last name starts with h but i'm not it's it because he's He's, it does feel like it's not his story to tell. Mm. I don't know. I have a lot of sympathy for him in the abstract. His just behavior of this volume was like kind of shit. But making Sorry. it a puzzle is the worst is the worst part for me. That's the part where I'm like, okay, that's kind of like the dickest part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, but, he wants her to be, he wants others to be as shocked and taken aback as he was. That's yeah, the yeah, thing. Like he's setting oh. that in motion so everyone mm. can experience it the way he experienced it. And mm. also like... Yeah, it's it's a it's a swipe at her. It's a swipe at his wife for sure because yeah. he knows it's gonna kind of it's gonna come back to her, and she's gonna find out that he did it too. Like there's no way of hiding that. 
because the sister is obviously going to say, yeah, like he sent me there. Yeah. yeah, some real weird mind games going on from him. Just kind of reacting the only way he knows how, the way his like mother probably taught him. And yeah. Now that now that he's regressing even more because he's back living with her, like yeah, mm. there's a lot going on here. Oh, and maybe that's why Ayako and Eri have such like an easy like meeting or relationship in comparison. Mm. Yeah. Because she wasn't there for all the guilt and stuff that's holding him down. She just knows there's a distance. Mm. So her thought mm. is heal this distance the way you know my younger sister did. Yeah. But I love the part where she said she didn't tell area all about her sister's problem like the messy parts and the sister yeah. was like whatever it's fine i lived through it in <laughs> life that felt yeah. like such a ripped from reality type you know mm. bit of dialogue mm. i feel like everyone i know who's been through a lot of not everyone obviously but people who are comfortable sharing things like that are always really comfortable sharing it you know if mm. they feel it'll help or if they feel it'll be needed perspective mm. but they also recognize that everyone's situation is different so that what worked for them might not work for others and I feel that push and pull in their conversation. It was really pleasant. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm into it. I want to ask you guys, because this is a book that was written that features female main characters written by a woman. Do you feel like the men were depicted in an unrealistic way or an unsympathetic way? Or did it resonate truthfully with you or people? Well, there's only, there's only really one man. Yeah, but with Taru, right? Yeah, with Taru, because the, the dad's in a hospital. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that part's realistic. Yeah, I think it does make me want to see myself, or maybe what am I trying to say? I think I do look for aspects of him that reflect myself more often mm-hmm. in that sense, which is probably why I feel like charitable towards some of the things that he's doing, even though I can admit like that they're not great. Let's say, mm. but it feels like a realistic reaction to kind of everything that you've been working towards as a team may be going away and maybe Mm -hmm. the team wasn't as strong as you thought it was or something like that. Yeah. That's, um, I think the dad, there's not a lot of men in this book right now. And I think that that's not like, I I kind of didn't actually notice that until you just asked. Yeah. I think the dad's off the board right now specifically so that they can introduce him later and he can be a problematizing figure and I think that that's they'll keep him sick and in his bedroom as long as they need to until it gets to the next part of the story when it's like, all right, we need a new obstacle. Let's introduce the dad. It, it it's exactly mm-hmm. like Logan Roy in Succession. Maybe if I don't. I still haven't watched that. it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Akari is the one that I feel maybe the most out of everything because it's like, yeah, who, yeah, who hasn't who hasn't <laughs> ended up with someone who uh, was curious about something and then ended up. Uh, that oh actually i'm really straight in a relationship and uh i don't know how i feel about all this and it's like oh my god yeah. when she was just like I, how am i the villain like a straight <laughs> married lady hit on me and now everyone's coming to my work to see who i am that's wrecking this home and it's like yeah yeah oh dude uh yeah she she was the most sympathetic to me like way more than, than wataru like i saw myself more in that and i think it's maybe more experiential and just that she's like an out gay person which is also not super easy mm-hmm. not super easy anywhere but definitely not super easy in japan after the last couple of weeks so i don't know i kind of don't yeah i don't know i noticed two things while you were talking that were related to deb's question what you were saying the mm-hmm. deb's bit is easier so there is one other guy in this book and it's the guy who declares his love to akari after she's like oh i just need to get another lover and oh it's yeah the, it's basically oh. the wave listen to me guy who 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The same restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so good. She's like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Never mind. No, thank you. And then she's like, no, I'm pretty hot after that, yeah. which is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I loved. That was great. But you were talking about kind of her living like kind of out and this complicating her life. I just realized she's wearing the same outfit when she calls Ayano. Mm. That Ayano was wearing in the flashback that her friend asked her to wear to the carnival. Yeah, the, to have the, that like, oh. trench, coat trench coat. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. So there's like so much good stuff in this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shimura Sensei is. There's. I, I, I don't know. Shimura Sensei is like. A, if you read the comments on our last episode, Erica kind of gets into a little bit and gets into it a little bit with the special article she wrote for us, Erica Friedman who's a writer on many things, but Yuri manga in particular. And Shimura Sensei isn't really forthcoming about her own sexuality, and she doesn't have to be. It's particularly difficult for for people in Japan to do so and maintain different kinds of things. But she talks a lot about queer issues in the queer community and being a lesbian. <laughs> so like, whatever, we can all draw our conclusions. And this, I mean, it feels like so much, like either she's got nothing but lesbian friends to pull stories from, you know what I mean? Or this is lived lived experience like little things like dress up like a and, oh and it gets into the the high school prince situation that we've talked about a lot on oh, this as well yes. i think we talked about it first in what was the what was the book uh, um, nozaki-kun uh, nozaki-kun yeah oh yeah it's like yeah the like beautiful girl that all the other girls are in love with in school except they're in a mixed school there but yeah like, like it gets into that trope and it being 20 years ago how that was even more of a trope then and there's just a lot but then it's like what does this look like in a real day-to-day life kind of a way and it's like yeah someone dresses a little bit like like butch femme kind of a situation trench coat shorter hair whatever but still like got like femme markers and it's 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 the fact that this is in the manga and it's all coded just in the art because she's both writer and artist so she doesn't have to spell that out she's like oh i'm like obviously this closeted teen lesbian girl is like i want you to wear this specific thing and then she does, and she looks great. That's like a thing, right? Like she's seen this in fashion magazines. She's seen this probably in manga that she's read. She's seen this probably in like illicit gay things that she is like hiding from her parents under her bed. And she's trying to live this portion of her life. And I mean, Ayano just doesn't get it because she's literally never considered the idea. Like she just mm-hmm. hasn't thought about it at all. And for this other girl, you know hugging her sadly every time, knowing that Ayano doesn't get it and doesn't reciprocate her feelings. Like, really good. And it's all coded and it's all in there. And some of it's explicit and some of it's not. But the fact is that, like, you don't do that by accident. Like, you either have literally the best research in the world or this is something that you felt. And I think regardless, and I'm not trying to in or out Shimura Sensei, it feels really real. Mm -hmm. That part of it feels really real. And that is... Again, like all my problems that I've that I've listed with not liking this one as much as the first one, I still want to keep reading it. Like it's actually so <laughs> yeah. so good because yeah. the the character stuff is really really good, and the wacky sitcom situations that we keep finding ourselves in, I like I don't care about, but the execution is just so bang on. You know, like I want to I want to find out what happens to these people next, and not in a Wikipedia way like that other book. I actually <laughs> want to read the stories because the execution's so good. It's funny. It's the danger of introducing multiple characters with their own storylines. It's like the chances of hitting the reader equally with all of those is so mm-hmm. low. Like you're going to be more invested in one or the other. Like, mm-hmm. you know, shout outs. I just finished watching White Lotus season two. 
very good. But it follows like various couples and people. I'm just like, there are stories I'm more interested in than others. So when other characters popped up on screen, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'll follow them for a bit. But they're still not the main one. If the story was just about them, I'd probably actually be into it. But because there's mm-hmm. so much more interesting stuff happening elsewhere, it always feels like, oh, okay, yeah, I just kind of want to get by this part to get to the the stuff that I do like. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's a bit of a tricky thing as any kind of author introducing kind of multiple character arcs because you might alienate your reader from at least one of them. Yeah. Mm. And then now growing up to have a shotgun wedding was another thing where you're like, Oh, like a lot's changed between high school and now like a lot of things yeah. are going down. Yeah. The, you mentioned like the best research ever, the thing with the hugs and where she's mm-hmm. like, she could tell that I wasn't into it and she just stopped like being in a relationship where like the hugs changed tenor was totally a real thing. Yeah. So I was amazed to see that and infuriated to see that in this comic book. Yeah. Wow. How dare they? Yeah. <laughs> How dare they know my feelings? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my hugs are always pure of heart. <laughs> they really are. I'll give you that. They feel mm-hmm. nice. No. Yeah. I'm from Hawaii. That, that's how we say hello. I'm numb to it. <laughs> <laughs> Completely numb to it. So it's nice. Everyone... Got something from this. Everyone seems to like it. Should we just jump into some final thoughts? Chris, since you started us off, you want to start us with this? Yeah, I'm going to read volume three. And I think that that is kind of all I need. I've said said all I need to say. I actually am going to read volume three. And now it's just, do I skip ahead and read volume three or wait for someone to recommend it on the podcast? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You don't have time to read volume three without it being recommended. You know that. Mm -hmm. And Deb, what are your final thoughts? I must say, like, I tend to read fast, and this is a very visually very light book, right? But if you speed through it, you miss a lot. And what I love yeah. about talking about this book with you guys is that you force me to slow down and re-examine what I'm seeing and, and realize the, the level of craft that is maybe not obvious on a first read. Mm. The level of craft of writing, the level of craft in visual storytelling, the level of craft in the character development. It makes me appreciate this book so much more. I do want to keep reading it, even though it's not like an easy melodrama. Mm. And it's not a, it's not a horny book. <laughs> yeah. no. And it's not exactly super book. romantic either. It's just kind of like this interesting <laughs> drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it doesn't make you go like, oh, I wish I was in love. Or it doesn't make you go like, wow, I wish I was getting some. It's kind of like, oh, this, these are people. Yeah. Kind of making their way through a difficult situation. And, I like that I don't know what's going to happen. It's funny It's funny you talk about the idea of kind of normally just reading books like this fast. Because that's, that's the one thing with comics. Like with, with when we consume like TV or movies or music, like you're set at a time. Like you, yeah. I mean, I know some people that like watch shows on one and a half speed, which is crazy as far as I'm concerned. But like you, you're, you're locked in to what the, what the creator has determined the length should be and has to be for a scene like a pause or someone doing something fast or slow like that's the same for all of us when we're consuming media except for maybe adhd tendencies that kind of have you bouncing around and with novels you can read straight through fast or slow but there's a limit to like how fast really yeah with 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 comics someone could just really speed read something like super quick, or you could like pour over it for an hour a page, which you can't do with a novel. Yeah, it's it's Sounds a very specific horrible. thing. It's I know it sounds it sounds 
you know, I often think about this in terms of like producing pages, how much time goes into a page and how quickly people will read it. But it's nice knowing that there's the high reread factor, especially with something like this, where I did go through it. And then I went back and I reread it because I could. I wouldn't do that with a novel. But because of this, it can slow down on the next read through. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going with this, except to say that comics is a very distinct medium that uh, can benefit a reader and also ruin a reader. Yeah. Ruin yeah. an author. And an author. I, won't, I won't say which author, but they were at a book launch event and it was like the actual launch for their book, in, let's say in the young adult space. And mm-hmm. so people were get, were like buying the book and then getting in line. And I think the, the like the fifth or sixth person in line got to the front and was like, I just read it in line. It's my favorite book. And the author was like, <laughs> Internally, like, this took me two years. Like, this is two (laughs) years of my life. And you read it in the line waiting to get me to sign it. Like, they just pounded (laughs) through it to just, like, absorb it as quickly as they could. And and they felt, like, in the moment, like, literally destroyed. Like, I I did two years and someone read this book in eight minutes. Yeah. But at the same time, (laughs) they also know that that young person is going to read that book a hundred more times. So it's also like, it's not really about the length of time. It's maybe about how it stays with you and how many times you go to read back. But as an author, it can be profoundly discouraging to hear, oh, I read it so quickly because I loved it. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the, the way I've kind of fixed that in my head, because it happens a lot, obviously, mm. especially with like single issues, I multiply by the number of people that are having that experience. Oh, okay. When, when when knowing someone is reading like a Batman comic or whatever in like five ten minutes, I'm like, well, they're not getting the full thing by doing that. But all right, well, maybe like seventy thousand people read that, and it all took them five to ten minutes. Like that's a lot of time. I have I have taken up so much time of people in the world, <laughs> and I'm so proud of it. <laughs> well, that's a great way to look at it. That <laughs> yeah. actually is a it's really healthy. really good way to work at it. I like Super that. healthy. I got a lot of great coping mechanisms. <laughs> All right, so uh, went off the rails there. David, what's yeah. your final thought? I, Don't you try and co-host, Chris. I saw you trying <laughs> to get in there. I know what I'm doing. And did he interrupt your intro as well? Yeah. Not control. <laughs> so I am an author's dream, I think, because I'm one of those read one page for 20 minutes guys. So my final thought is on page one, I was with the portrait of, I don't know. I was yeah. like, oh. Right, this author can really draw. Like it's gonna be one of those. And this is like a very like classically like manga looking portrait of this lady, but like it has so much life and like I don't know, it's a good drawing, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on the very last page of the book is an author's note, which is also really good, which I love. Where she's like, Yeah, I thought I was gonna have a good year, and then I immediately got sick, and here's how I got better. And there are so many of these like types of author's notes in manga that it's kind of sad actually. But this was a good one. Like she has such a good sense of humor and good like caricature of herself to where I opened the book and I was like, this is great drawing. And as I was closing the book, I was like, oh, this is also very funny. So thank yeah. you for making us read volume two. My pleasure. And my final thought is it was my pleasure. <laughs> so yeah, even though we're adults, volume two, we are going to have some commercials probably selling you some really important things and we'll be right back. And we're back. And this week, we're going to open up the Manga Splaining Mailbag. And I believe our postal carrier, Christopher Woodrow Butcher, in his cute little postal office, 
as a as a, a, a letter, an email, a missive for us. Well, this one comes direct to us from Australia and the old emails, which is I think contact at mangasplaining.com. I don't know. It'll it's in the it's in the notes. <laughs> and it is from Michelle Bald. She says, Hi everyone, I'm one of your Australian listeners, and I found this podcast on Spotify in October. Listening to the podcast has really helped me work through a tough spot. Very nice. Thank uh-huh. you. My question is regards to the industry of publication translation. Other than knowing the language to translate from, what other qualifications would translators need in the publishing industry? Many thanks again. Loving each episode, Michelle. So I thought this would be a good one because I know that David looks, you know, David looks for different kinds of translators or or works with lots of different translators that have different strengths when he's working on different properties for Viz. And Deb, you worked in the manga translation battle where you were judging manga translations, different translations for a while. Could you maybe explain a little bit about what that's about first? Because I think that's a really interesting thing that not many people know about. Oh, that was something that was funded by the Digital Comics Association of Japan. Mm. And uh, I think it was the Japanese government, Culture and Arts funded it as well, where we would get three different manga, previously untranslated manga from different publishers. And then we would put a chapter up and challenge people around the world to give their shot at translating it. And what was interesting about that is several of the people who have won have gone on to professional careers, which Mm. is really fantastic. Like, for example, one of the prizes of of the contest was that if you were the winner for translating a particular manga, you actually got the contract to translate that manga. Oh, cool. The Digital Comics Association would underwrite the cost of the translation for whoever the publisher might be. Hmm. The New York New York Boys Love manga. Oh, that the Yen's Yen doing. Press. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. a formerly a manga translation battle title. And then they reached out to me about a year ago saying, hey, do you know how to get in touch with that guy who won? <laughs> 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 Which, I'm sorry, I'll put in the show notes um, I did meet him at the ceremony, and he did get the gig to translate that two omnibus volume Boys Love series. Awesome. I guess, you know, like, it was something that I co-judged with some people who are actually professional translators and bilingual people. Mm. And then what I was kind of looking for is kind of similar to my work, because I work in user experience content, that you look for voice and tone. And the other goal is to get a translation that gives an English reader the same experience, the same feelings, the same impressions that a Japanese reader would get. Now, that may not necessarily be a literal word-to-word translation, right? Like sometimes you make localization choices or sometimes like people struggle with trying to mimic the what, what's being implied by a Kansai accent, for example, right? Mm. What's being implied by a what the equivalent of like a Shakespearean accent in a, like a, something from Edo era Japan. Yeah. People struggle with that because there are nuances to Japanese language that are conveyed through words that are hard to convey in English. Mm-hmm. But mostly what you're looking for is a seamless kind of just like it just flows, right? Like you can just read it, enjoy it. You're getting the same feelings, the same vibe as a Japanese reader and Good translation, like good design, to me, should be pretty much invisible. It should mm. just feel right. It just should feel like these, like we were talking about Ebinora adults, like, you know, these are people talking. And maybe there's little nuances in how the mother talks, and there's little nuances in how the guy about Wataru talks. And they shouldn't all sound like the same person. Mm. And 
and there's different there's different voice and tone and like depending on how they're whether they're being super frosty and polite or they're being really familiar or they're or very passive aggressive as they were this episode <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> even though we're ad- adults so these are all very subtle things and in with manga's translation the other the other aspect of that of complication is can it fit in a word balloon yeah <laughs> mm. And a lot of the Japanese word balloons are tall and thin, which means certain long words are, even though you might want to use a long word, will not fit. Or trying to explain something like what what they can express in what ten characters in Japanese requires several words in English, and you just won't fit in the goddamn bubble. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all kinds of trade offs with translation, but I would say the number one tip, because I to bring it back to the question, is. Besides having a mastery of the language and the culture, you just need to be a good writer in the in the target language. Mm. Deb stole my only answer with her last sentence. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that was good. my follow up too. Yeah, it's. I think what you're saying is pretty much on target because, like, for even though we're adults, for instance, uh, Casey Lucas is credited for adaptation, Justin Allen for translation, and I'm curious what the differences between the two were on this project, kind of like what mm. Casey brought to it and what Jocelyn brought to it. Yeah. Because if you give six people the same thing to translate, you're going to get six different things. Yeah. Because like translation is not a direct one-to-one thing. Like you have to be able to interpret as you translate in a lot of ways for fiction, especially. Mm-hmm. So the thing about being a writer, I really kind of zeroed in on as I was kind of like learning about like hiring translators and things like that. Because if you're already used to solving these kinds of problems, like dialogue problems, you, it's maybe easier or maybe a different process to solve it in like your native language then. I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like the more experience you have writing, the better the translations end up being in the end. That makes mm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Jocelyn said the same thing. Is that it, And she's got a lot of philosophy about it, so I don't want to overly simplify. I'll link to an actual interview that she gave where she you know, goes on it to talk about it at more at length but yeah translation is writing like the best translators not only know the the language that they're translating from like michelle saying like what do you need in addition but also understand the cultural bits of mm-hmm. like you can understand what someone's you know actually saying but if you don't understand the culture that it comes from you maybe don't understand the meaning of it and then beyond that being able to write convincingly or interestingly down to little individual word choices like David noticing supper instead of dinner to describe <laughs> yeah. evening meal. And, and that can mark well. a different thing. And supper is like a less yeah. formal than dinner is. And like, was that use, what was the Japanese word there? Did they choose, did Jocelyn and Casey choose supper specifically because they said, let's get a meal rather than like, let's specifically get like formal dinner? Like, what? All of those things, like we're not going to know as readers of the translated work. Well, maybe, but, maybe, maybe they meant let's get a bite to eat before we go out in our fishing boats. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chip learned something today. Chip learned something today. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, the best, the best translators, I think, are writers themselves. And I actually also think the the thing I was most interested about is David, you're. Unlike a lot of editors, I think your projects are all over the place. Like you do <laughs> really different projects from project to project, or you'll be working on like four or five things at the same time that have very different like tones or styles or audiences, like everything from like shonen battle manga to 
things with like really heavy accents to more technical writing when you're doing like art books and stuff like that, where it has to be a like a more formal or less conversational kind of speech. For mm-hmm. you, is it about finding the right translator or is it like someone's assigned and it's working with them to pull them into the space that the project needs? It's more, it's both. It's hiring someone. Like I choose all my translators and that kind of thing. So I have been since I think the my very first project they did, which was like a babysitting kind of job. Mm. But when I'm choosing a translator, I do want to pull them into the project, like have a certain tone or that kind of thing, or pull them into like the tone of the project, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, an opening email is like, hey, here's kind of what I'm going for. Here's kind of the tone I'm looking for. But also here's where you can be, bring some creativity to it, like bring your own voice or mark or, you know, experience essentially. Mm. Because even though, you know, I said like being a writer is great for being a translator. If you're not a great writer, there's other ways to compensate. Yeah. Like for what I do, essentially a translator gives me a script. I punch it up in like Hollywood terms and then pass it on to a letterer. They lay it out and then we do all the copy editing and that kind of thing. Yeah. So if you give me a script, you're like, I'm not very strong at this kind of dialogue, but here's all the info you need to figure out exactly what context I'm translating here to see if mm. I made the right decision or to help get me into the right ballpark. That's amazing. That's just as good as being a great writer, I think. Because then, you know, I have enough information to hopefully make an intelligent decision. And getting both is like a blessing. <laughs> I can't speak specifically to this book that we read today, but that's generally what adaptation is. Like if there's not a strong editor on a project who's doing like a heavy punch-up kind of editing pass, like Seven Cs who published even though we're adults and then Viz have very different editorial sort of you know, situations going on that like an adapter will be like a translator, like, here's everything you need to know about what they said. Here's what I think you should go with. But as like the, the final word, like make your decision as like the adapting, the adapting writer. And I think that that's like, there's so many different ways to do this. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to add is one of the projects we did at Monk Explaining Extra was Ken Nimura's uh, short story. And it is a short story that has so much cultural context that like he's Spanish, Japanese, and he expresses himself Generally, when he's thinking, he thinks in Spanish, but he also is fluent in English and fluent in Japanese. And so he wrote this story, translated himself in, into Japanese from the Spanish, and like it's a great Japanese story. And it's about three people, two Spanish dudes and a Japanese dude, doing this like ancient 12th century Spanish like performance in the streets of Tokyo. And we're trying to translate all of this with the cultural context of it around it. And he was just like, here's what it means, but I'm not trying to translate this into English. He knows English. And he wrote Mm -hmm. the story, but he knows that his English isn't necessarily at the level that he wants that to be the final product. He wants someone who's like an English writer or an English editor or an English adaptation person to like turn the story into something that really flows and feels good and communicates all of the nuance and the ideas that he wants in the story in their native language as an editor. So I know that Andrew worked really closely with them and there was like tons of back and forth at the lettering stage, because I lettered that one, I went back and I was like, yeah, there a couple of these words are a little, little, little long. Can we say something like this? Does this still communicate what it needs to communicate? And it was a really interesting process to speak to someone where you could show them the English you had written and they said, yeah, that's it, but couldn't necessarily easily generate it themselves. And that's like, you can know the language, but if you're, if you don't know the language to the degree that you want to know the language, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be a poor translation or a stiff translation or a robotic translation. And working with someone is one way to do that. Studying harder is one way to do that. Hiring somebody because you don't want to do those two things. You just want to be pounding out comics pages as quick as you can is another way to do that. And I think 
that's an amazing thing that we don't, I've never, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have gotten to do that. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll see if we can rope in Jocelyn and Co. Cause they're both in Japan right now where I am. Yeah, cool. And just to get like a, maybe a, like a quick snippet to talk about that. Or if they've got an interview where they talked about it, we can link in the show notes. I think that'd be really fun. I've got because a, it's, it's such a big question. Too. Oh, really? The the project I mentioned where I was babysitting, which is totally the wrong word. It was like a training wheels project. It was like, here's a bunch of pros, rookie editor, don't mess this up too bad. Oh, they were they were babysitting you. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly, ah. actually. <laughs> but it was called Record of Grand Crest War. It was written yep. by the Record of Loras War, the writer from there back then. And it's like high fantasy, like elves and stuff. And if you've listened to literally any episode of Manga Explaining, I am very much like a 1950s, 60s trench coat and cigarettes guy. Yeah. Way out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> but we had a, an adapter, a rewriter on the book, a guy by the name of Stan, who knows fantasy. Like he can do the, the voice without it sounding like doing a voice. And that was a real <laughs> like, helpful thing. It was actually a great education on kind of like the different challenges you can meet in localization. So, yeah. Really cool. There's hmm. definitely all kinds of, you know, like I think like Mark, Mark Simmons. He he specializes in Gundam tr- translation for Gundam stuff. Oh, that's brilliant! Actually, which basically so has a whole arcane vocabulary and backgrounder. And if you don't, if you don't mind your P's and Q's with Gundam, people are going to let you know. <laughs> so <laughs> it's an interesting little niche, right? Mm-hmm. To better understand the challenges of translating Japanese, did you see the Duolingo Japan video, the Museum of Wonky English? No, Is no, no. Oh, it's hilarious. They had yeah. set up this museum in Harajuku with all these examples of really weird, wonky, Japanese-translated English. And one is a, they, had a, they had a coffee pot, an empty coffee pot, and it said, let me get this. I had it. It says, when coffee is gone, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you show the Japanese, and what the Japanese actually says is, when you are out of instant coffee packets, we will not replenish them. <laughs> yeah, same difference. Oh, like in your hotel room. It's in your close. hotel room. When yeah. the coffee is gone, it is over. It is over. And yeah, then there was over, another one. It's like, please urinate with precision and elegance. Yes. I like that one, actually. <laughs> actually, I like that mm-hmm, one yeah. a lot, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That makes sense. That was actually yeah. better than the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, I, well, contrary, that is not wonky at all. Like, oh, English, I should say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's just fancy. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. Chip, would you ever hire someone to be like, to help you with a script like that? Like if you were doing like a fantasy story or something? I would probably hire you for some like 50s, 60s hard-boiled slang. Like uh, I believe oh, in a, yeah. a text earlier this week, David <laughs> used the word cockamamie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Kind of a funny duddy at heart, but what can you do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're an old soul, David. <laughs> I really am. It's like getting weird as I get older. <laughs> Talking so, yeah. is pretty good. Good question, Chris. Ready to go. Well, good question, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle, for uh, sending mm-hmm. in your question. If you have questions for manga explaining, please send them in. We'll we'll actually answer them this season. I swear. We're going for shorter episodes, so we'll always have time. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Thanks so much. Well, that's an episode of manga explaining. Just like previous episodes but this one was a bit different uh yeah i'm chip i never host this is me hosting thank you goodbye
this has been Manga Splaining, episode 86, Even Though We're Adults, volume 2, by Takako Shimura. Thanks for listening. For our next episode, we'll be reading Rose of Versailles, volume 1, by Ryoko Ikeda. Want to pick up a copy? Please consider supporting your local comic book or manga specialty shop. Find one near you at comicshoplocator.com. Or check out your local library for print and digital lending options. You can also follow along with our complete reading list at mangasplaining.com. And don't forget to check out our newsletter and publishing endeavor at mangasplainingextra.com. Thanks to DADS for their musical accompaniment this episode.